hour, we need the Lord. Now, there's not a moment that goes by that where we don't need Him. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter number 1. Titus, chapter number 1. Titus is a small book tucked away back behind 1st and 2nd Timothy. And if you're missing it, you can go to Revelation and take a left. But Titus chapter number 1. And I'll give you a little extra time to get there this morning before we stand. Um, because I'll be preaching this morning on a, uh, this topic, Our Certain Hope. Our Certain Hope. The uh, assurance of salvation by the way, is something that Christians have been struggling with for a really long time. I believe from the beginning, uh, Christians at one point or another have struggled with that. Um, and they've written about their struggles in being assured of their salvation. I, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, and especially as a former youth pastor, I've heard, uh, Pastor Billy, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, I've been baptized, but I don't know, I don't know if I'm really saved. Uh, I don't know if I'm saved, and uh, and and it, this happened. This is especially prevalent amongst uh, teens, especially when we go to camp. When I see a certain teen come down to make a profession of faith, and my thought is, well, didn't I see you last year? Come down to make a profession of faith, and didn't I see you two years ago? And didn't I see you come three weeks ago when you asked me about Revelation? And. Uh, so my thought is, what's the struggle that we're having with the assurance of salvation? And I believe one of the problems is that a lot of followers in Jesus, they look for the assurance of salvation in, in the wrong places. Uh, we tend to, and, and these places aren't, aren't necessarily bad, by the way, but we tend to look and to seek for the assurance of salvation in things, God, in things God is doing in our lives, in our spiritual growth, in the good works and obedience that, uh, to God's Word that, that's evident. And while these things can be evidence of salvation, uh, they're not what we should be looking for, and, we, and they're not what we should base the assurance of our salvation on. So let's look and see what the Bible says. If you would, let's stand together to, and as we read Titus chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Titus chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Paul tells us he's writing in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of, our, of God and our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you to, to, for your word today. Lord, may you speak through me. Lord, I decrease and you increase. And Lord, may our hearts be open to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So what we're looking at here today in Scripture is, is, is that God and, and Paul, and God speaking through Paul, is grounding our assurance of salvation in God's grace. The assurance of mine and your salvation is not anything that we've done. It's not anything that we, are, that we are seeing or have seen. The assurance of mine and your salvation is in the grace of God. 
It's in God's grace. I'm not quite to that first point yet, but I'll get there in just a moment. Um, uh, but I do want to point out this, that the assurance of salvation is vitally important to our Christian experience and vitally important to our Christian lives. And all of us should be seeking it. Uh, the key to this fruitfulness, as one pastor says, is uh, the key to having a productive Christian life is to have a life that's founded solidly on the assurance of our salvation, knowing whether or not you're saved, knowing that you have eternal life through Jesus. The, etern- the unsure Christian, as they say, is a Christian who lacks stability in their faith. An unsure Christian is tossed. To and fro, as the Bible says, with every wind of doctrine. An unsure Christian, by the way, is easy prey for Satan. To be unsure of our salvation in Christ is to be easy prey for Satan. Who, by the way, does everything in his power to undermine our confidence in Christ. And so a Christian, by the way, you and me, if we lack the, that, that kind of confidence that God has saved us and that God has given us eternal life, you and I can easily become uh, trapped in insecurity. And, and, and what flows out from that is a lack of boldness to uh, go out into this world armed with the armor of God and tell people God's word because how can we... Tell someone a sure word if we're not even sure about it. If we're not even sure if it's power in our lives. You and I, when we face this world and when we face Satan, we need to be sure and have the assurance that you and I have hope in eternal life. And so how is it that believers in Jesus, um, uh, how is it that, that we can have this certain hope? And I believe that the answer is in these scriptures right here. Um, it's found in um, the God's purpose in saving. And so there are three things I'm going to, I'm going to preach today on through this. Uh, first of all, um, that, our, that the assurance of our salvation is grounded in the uh, uh, unshakable promises of God. And then uh, we'll get to the eternal uh, plan of God and then the present proclamation of the word of God. So let's look at the first one. Our assurance of salvation is grounded in the unshakable promises of God. The fact that you and I are saved, the fact that we can be assured of that salvation is grounded in God's promise. And God outlines this in uh, in this passage here. He says we have a hope of eternal life in Titus 1 verse 2. He says we have a hope of eternal life in which God who never lies promised that's an that's incredible wording there and, I, and, I'm, and i'll get to the rest of that verse in just a moment the point is is that when a is that when a sinner believes in jesus they discover promises from god that make guarantees on you on which you and i can re, can rely upon uh, to find these assurances in the promise of god is to trust in the character of, of god and to trust in the character of the lord who made these promises and that and so god and so paul goes on who says God has given this promise of eternal life. He's a God, by the way, who never lies. Paul wants to make sure we understand and we get the character of God. He's not just making a promise. Any one of us can make a promise. But God makes a prominent promise, and he never, by the way, lies. You never have to come to a place where you don't trust that he's going to lie. As one pastor said, our hope is not hung upon an untwisted thread as such as an I imagine so or it's likely that I have eternal life. It's, it's likely that I have assurance. 
But the rope that we uh, fasten our assurance to is the oath and the promise of God for eternity. And that's what can, can comfort you and me, is that when God saves, he saves. And that when God saves, he, he gives us the assurance of knowing that you and I can, are saved. So what are some of the promises? What are some of the promises that God gave us that we can use, that we can lean on to know that we have the assurance of salvation? And I believe one of them is that the Bible promises when a sinner believes Christ is Savior, he or she is immediately forgiven for their sins and they're justified through faith and they're given eternal life. Somebody say amen to that. That should be exciting. That when we are saved, we're given eternal life and that's something that's not going to be taken away. The Bible tells us in, in many areas, and I want you to write these references down. I'm not going to give you enough time to write the scripture down, um, but write the references down. Jesus said this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life in John 3.36. John 3.36. And then in John 5.24, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's an ongoing peace. It's not something that's just for now. It's ongoing. Romans 5.1. And then Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I, when we are saved, we have the assurance and we can know that we ha- and, then we, and we can know that we've been saved and we don't have to question it. But man, that comes when we face the difficult times. When we're confronted with certain passages of revelation, I'm going to tell you uh, when uh, when I was uh, uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I had more uh, more kids come down and talk about wanting to be saved after a night of uh, questioning revelation than any other night. And revelation is a scary book, but revelation was not given to you and me to scare us into thinking that we're not saved. It's to get revelation was given to us to show us and to give us the hope that Jesus Christ is going to win. That's what Revelation is given to us for. It's given to us to show us that God is going to punish sin, but for believers, God is going to win. And that's, that, that's what we should be getting from that. We shouldn't be trying to worry about timelines and, uh, and, 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 and figuring out what dates or what. We read Revelation knowing that God is going to win. And those smaller, minute details that we don't know, that the Bible doesn't give clear picture of, Stop trying to figure it out. We don't know the timeline of when God's coming back. What we do know is that he's coming back. And what we do know is that he's coming back and he's going to claim his throne and he's going to win. But we have these questions of revelation. And uh, it, usually happens, it usually happens during those times and, and, kids, and kids and adults become scared. The Bible wasn't written to scare believers. It was written to show you how great our God is and to show you how incredible, uh, how, in, how, how much assurance that you can have in knowing that you're saved. Now, if you're not saved, you better be scared. You better be. Because if you're not saved and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, you are going to look face to face with a holy, righteous, eternal God who's going to judge your sin. And that should be scary. But that God loves you so much, by the way, that he sent his son to die. We'll look at that more in just a little bit. 
You know, our doubt sometimes can undermine those promises by questioning, by questioning whether God's forgiveness is only uh, temporal or whether it's just a partial cleansing or, or just a little provisional acceptance of God, but not true acceptance, not true forgiveness. But the Bible gives us a promise otherwise. In Psalm 103, verse 12, the Bible tells us and God reassures us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgression from us. And then in Hebrews 7 tells us Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in John, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. You and I need to be continuously, you and I are continuously reminded, and we need to continuously remind ourselves that God's forgiveness is not temporary. It's not partial. When God forgives, He forgives, and it's a permanent forgiveness. It's not something that's going to be taken away from us, by the way. Jesus said, nobody can be snatched out of my hand. No one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. Now, there are times when God's sheep need to be corrected, absolutely. Even after we get saved, we sin. And there are times when God provides the correction, but that correction is not tossing us out. A loving father does not toss out their children when they misbehave. He provides correction. And that correction is a blessing because the Bible tells us that God loves loves those that he corrects. Now, another reason that some of us may doubt is that, is that our hearts can point out, yeah, I'm saved by faith, and, uh, and, and while I believe that now, uh, what certainty is there going to be that that faith is going to continue to the end? And so we see that question, that question of our perseverance in the faith to be, uh, and what we need to see is that uh, our perseverance is, is as sure as our salvation. Sadly, there's a whole lot of Christians who are taught that there's no assurance of persevering because a true believer can fall away and ultimately be lost. But God's promises tell a different story. God's promises tell us that a believer cannot fall away. A believer cannot be ultimately then be lost if they were once a believer. Jesus said, as I said earlier, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's John 10, 27 and 28. And then Paul said, and then Paul said this in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And then Peter said this, I'm giving you a lot of scripture. And if you need, if you need me to repeat something after the service, I'll be glad to do so. But Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 1. He said that believers possess an inheritance, verses 4 and 5, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Bible verses such as these that I've read and a whole lot and quite a few more in which God promises believers forgiveness, in which God promises them justification and acceptance and perseverance. These should be some of the most loved scriptures that you and I have and some of the most frequently memorized portions of scripture that that we should have. We should memorize and know these scriptures that God, when he brings his children in, they ain't going anywhere. 
To make it grammatically correct, when he brings his children in, they ain't going nowhere. Some of you are looking at me, Billy, that's not grammatically correct. <laughs> Trying to get my teenager through these EOGs. Stop it, Billy. <laughs> but it's true nonetheless, God's people, when they're brought into God's fold, are going nowhere. And it's by God's power that they're kept. Not by mine and your power. If it was by mine and your power, we'd be gone the very first day that we're saved. If not the first day, then the second day for sure. But it's not by mine and your power that we're kept. It's by God's power. And God gives us these promises. How many of you, by the way, I want to give you a little illustration. How many of you have ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? I talked about it enough. Some of you probably should have picked it up. The Pilgrim's Progress. One. Okay. So let me give you a little, uh, little story here. The Pilgrim's Progress is about a man named Christian who's on his, who's on his journey uh, toward the celestial city, which is heaven. And so during this time, Christian and his, and his uh, friend Hope, his companion Hope, they come, in, they, they come up to this place called Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle. And uh, they fell asleep near there. They were sleeping near the dungeon when the giant by the name of Despair came and seized them and locked them in a cage. And, it became, and, their, and the outlook came, became pretty bleak because despair and doubt had them seized in, in a place that they were not going to be able to get out of themselves. Christian, this is what happens to you and me. When doubt and despair get a hold of our lives, the assurance of salvation is what helps us get out of that. Because when doubting and despair overcome us, we begin to wonder, are we, are we really saved? When doubting and despair overcome us, we begin to wonder, does God really love me? Why am I in this situation? Why am I here? I feel like I'm locked in a cage. And that's what John Bunyan's pointing out. But here's what he did. Here's, here, here's how the story goes. Uh, the answer was found, and the reason that they were able to get out of this doubting castle and get out of the clutches of this giant called despair was that Christian remembered that he had on his person a key. And this key was called promise. And they used this key called promise to open the lock of the dungeon door. And so door after door in the castle of doubt, it was unlocked by this key called promise until Christian and Hope were free to continue uh, to advance uh, toward, toward, uh, toward, toward God's kingdom. And so what, what, what the story is trying to point out here is this, is that by possessing and remembering that you have God's promise and that God's promise has been given to you, that you have eternal life, uh, then, then doubt and despair cannot hold you. You and I are delivered from doubt. We're delivered from despair. We're delivered from questioning whether or not our salvation is real because we hold on to the promise that God has given us that you can know that you have eternal life. Amen. That's what this, that little part of the story is about. Now, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, please do. Please do. It's an incredible book. And second only to the Bible, it is the best-selling, it is the top-selling book ever. Um, second only to the Bible. So check out The Pilgrim's Progress. It's, uh, uh, you can find it in print everywhere. And it's the only other book other than the Bible that has never went out of print. Check it out. Um, an incredible Christian book. And so assurance is grounded, by the way, on God's promise that he's given us eternal life. And secondly... Assurance of salvation is grounded not only in the unshakable promise, but also the eternal plan of God. The eternal plan of God. So now we're back in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. 
And we're, and we're going to finish out that verse that, that I didn't finish out earlier because Paul says we have the hope of eternal life in which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He promised before the ages began. And so far, we can see in the Bible the promise that God makes, us, makes to us in there. But to whom did God promise this in eternity past before he created anyone? To whom did God make this promise of salvation, this hope of eternal life? Who did he promise it to before he even created? Before the ages even began? And the promise was made within the Trinity. God the Father promised our salvation to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son. God promised that there would be a people that he would be saved. And this promise points out that before God even made the heavens and the earth, before God ever made people, before, before the six days of Genesis, God made a promise to his son that those who would belong to Jesus would have eternal life. And so the question is, is, that there, is, there, is there other evidence of this? Because, uh, because that's pretty far-reaching if we're just using one verse. Um, what's going on here with this? Um, was there a plan that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit um, for salvation even before the world began? Um, were the evidence of crucifixion, was it just a coincidence? Was it something that God had to react to because of Adam and Eve? Or was it something that God had a plan for from the very beginning? And I believe if we look at Acts chapter 2, we're going to find that out as well. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to have, I should have that one up on the screen. But in Peter's Pentecost sermon, after Jesus had, had risen back to heaven, after he ascended back to heaven, Peter was preaching at Pentecost. Say that three times fast. Peter was preaching at Pentecost where he said that lawless men, uh, by the hands of lawless men, Jesus was killed and crucified. And he was delivered up. Look at this. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't something that God had to, this wasn't something that God was simply reactionary to. This was planned. The Jewish leaders, yeah, they betrayed on their own volition. They betrayed Jesus to Pontius Pilate. But it was God who had, who had initially planned Jesus to death. Jesus' death. Hebrews 13.20 says that believers are blessed by the blood of the eternal covenant. And so those statements uh, tell us that in eternity past, uh, the Father and the Son, they mutually had an agreement that Jesus was going to willingly die for the forgiveness of this people. This is what's called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And so what the covenant of redemption is, is that the Father had this pre-creation agreement with His Son regarding this work. And that the kingdom of God's grace was prepared before, before, he, before creation even began. And so in light of that, you and I can look to this promise. You can look to assurance for God's covenant because He promised it not just to us, but He promised it to His Son before He even created us. Not merely that there would be some kind of believer that would need to be saved, but they themselves were given by the Father to the Son. The Father to the Son from the very beginning said, I have a people that I'm going to give to you. Now I realize this is some deeper theology here, but what we need to see and what we need to look at here is the fact that this isn't that, that salvation isn't just something that's reactionary. God had it, God had planned our salvation from the beginning. And that we can rest and have assurance in that, in that, in that, in that the fact that God, because he had it planned from the beginning, is something that's not going to be thwarted by even Satan. Something that's not going to be thwarted by you or me. 
Something that's not going to be overthrown by anyone. God had it planned from the beginning. I can imagine the conversation going something like this. My son, there's, there's going to be a multitude of people, a multitude of miserable people ravaged by sin. They've utterly, they've utterly undone themselves and now they're, and now they're subject to my justice. They're, they're, they have to face my wrath. What's going to be, uh, what, what are we going to do? And not in simply stating God didn't know. Father says, I love them, but their sin must be punished, must be punished. And then perhaps the son responded this way. My father I love them too, and I have pity for them as well. And rather that they suffer eternally, I will be responsible for them. Bring their bills to me that I may pay what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in. Lord, bring every one of their bills. Bring every one of their sin debts to me that there may no, be no more debt on, on your children, that there may be no more debt on God's people. I'll pay their debt, Father. I'll pay it. I'll suffer your wrath. I'll do it so that they don't have to. Put their debt upon me. So you and I have to remember that Jesus saved us not because, not against God's will, but because the Father loved us. And he loved us so much to send his son, yet there remained the problem, uh, there, there remained the problem of the demands of God's justice. And the, so the father responds, so, so think about this, the father responds to the son, if you, uh, if you go through this punishment, Jesus, you're going to have to be willing to pay every last cent for it. You're going to have to be willing to, to take every last beating, every last scar, every last punishment for all of these sinners. Jesus, son, you're going to have to do this. And I'm not going to let up on you. Just because you're my son, I'm not going, don't expect me to go easy on you. If I spare them as you desire me to do so, I will not spare you. And Jesus responds, Father, let it be so. Jesus responds, charge it all to me. Charge it all to the son. Every last sin debt that your people have incurred, charge it to the Son. Because unlike them, I can pay it. Unlike them, I can pay it. I can pay their debt. And that's exactly what he did. The plan from the very beginning. The Son paid the debt of God's people. He paid the sin debt. He paid mine and your debt that we owe to God. And he paid it because he loved us. He paid it because he knew that he could. Only God could pay the sin debt. And he came and he did it. <clears throat> How thankful we should be of God's grace. And how terrible it would be to be ungrateful. To overlook what Jesus did. To overlook that one who is, who, who is so pure. 
bore our stain. The one who was so rich, he took on our poverty. The one who was so innocent, he paid the penalty for our guilt because of his love. How terrible it would be to overlook that and to, and to, and to just and to go on about our lives, Christian, without ever thinking of that. How can, how can we overlook that grade of salvation? How can we complain because of the requirement of, of obedience to Him? How can we do any of that? Because He took it all upon Himself. And if you and I ever, if you and I ever grasp the greatness of God's love and God's grace through Jesus, we'd never be able to overlook it. How often do we do so? God's plan of salvation is eternal. And so we can be assured in it that because it's eternal, it's not going to, it never had a beginning and it will not have an end. So we can be assured of our salvation in God's unshakable promise and God's eternal plan. And lastly, our assurance is grounded in the present proclamation of God. The present proclamation of God. Verse 3 says, And at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, so Paul, what he's doing is he's pointing to uh, the, the preaching of God's word, the proclaiming of God's word, especially the gospel and the gospel's offer through Jesus Christ. That's what gives assurance. Uh, God's, uh, God's plan called for Jesus to accomplish our salvation. And so he gives us these promises through the scripture of a Savior who was going to come. And then at the right time, the Savior did come. Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. And, and, and as, the, as the climax of his, of his work, Paul identifies what G, what's happening here is that now the gospel is spreading through the faithful Christians telling people about Jesus. And we have the assurance of that. Knowing that the gospel message that is continuing to be preached. Looking at it from the very beginning, by the way. You know, if the gospel was some sort of just grand scale lie. I don't believe it could have lasted and, had, and grown as it has over the last 2,000 years. And I say 2,000 because that's simply the time when the New Testament church began. But from the time that God created the earth, the gospel plan was in motion. And if it was some grand scheme or some grand lie, it would have fallen apart long before now. So the fact that you and I are continually proclaiming God's word and being reminded of the gospel, that's assurance to know that God's plan is still continuing, that God's promise is still continuing, that God is still saving people. And the fact that you and I see that God is still saving people should give us the assurance to know that he saved us. That God is still changing lives. Means that God has changed mine. And if God hasn't changed your life, it may be that you've not surrendered to him. 
and that you need to surrender to him, that you need to hear the gospel, and that you need to hear the call of Christ upon your heart to surrender and come to Christ and repent of sin, turn away from it, and come to Christ. And the beauty of God's love and the beauty of God's grace is that he forgives those who come surrendering to him. My sheep, hear my voice. Come to Christ. Become one of those sheep. Surrender to him. What about the unbeliever, though? Now, if we can hear all of this through Bible study and through preaching, what about the unbeliever? How then are they going to call on Jesus? How then are they going to believe? How then are they going to get this assurance? How then are they going to get any of this? How then are they going to hear without someone preaching, without someone telling them? How does someone who doesn't come to church regularly, who doesn't come to church at all, how are they going to hear? How are they going to get this message? You. Not just me. I'm part of it. There's one of me and 80 of you, roughly. Y'all can do a whole lot more than what I can by myself. And it's not something you have to get super deep in the weeds. You need to know Jesus and know what he did, that he came to save sinners. Jesus didn't call us to know all the, to know all the answers to the questions. He called us to have faith and to point people to the one who, did, who does have all the answers. And, by the way, the, the questions that we don't have answered... Why we need faith. Where do people go today to meet Jesus? Where do they go to find Jesus? They can't go to Palestine and see him healing the sick. He's not there. They can't go to the Sea of Galilee and see him walking on the water. He's not there. They can't go to Jerusalem to see him standing outside the tomb because he's not there. How do they encounter Jesus? Our words, by the way. It's our words that they encounter him. In our evangelism, our preaching, our telling folks the good news. And that's why Paul was telling Titus in writing Titus this letter. Uh, by God's inspiration, that's why Paul was telling this. Because Titus also, he never saw the risen Jesus, but he is saved. Why? Not because he's not, not, obviously not because he saw the risen Jesus, but because he heard about the risen Jesus through a faithful servant. And anyone who's been saved since is not, is not saved because they, saw a risen, because they saw the risen Jesus, but because they heard the words in the gospel presentation from a faithful servant. So Paul's writing this to, to Titus. That's verse 1. It's not up there. Look in your Bibles. For the sake and of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, <coughs> knowing that our faith rests on the grace of God according to his unshakable promises, his eternal plan, and his presently proclaimed word. And he wants to see that we, that we have the hope of eternal life. He wants to see that we have the assurance of eternal life, realizing and knowing that the church is not built on leadership structures and the church is not built on doctrinal statements, although those things are great and they're good, but the church is built by the grace of God. And it's built by people coming to know God by God's grace. And so for this reason, Paul finishes up the very beginning of his letter. 
by writing this to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from the God, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We can't merit God's grace. We can't earn God's grace. We can't earn God's peace. We can't do anything to deserve it. It's all given to us through Jesus. Our salvation is given to us by surely God's grace. By grace you've been saved, the Bible says. By grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. It's by God's grace alone as God promised, as he planned, as he's proclaimed in his word that you and I can have eternal life. It's by God's grace alone that the church grows. It's by God's grace alone that the church grows in in, in number, in godliness, in spiritual joy. It's by God's grace alone. And we have, and, and we know the result of God's grace is the assurance of salvation. Knowing I have been saved. Do you know that you've been saved? You can know. That's the beauty of it. You can know. You can know that you've been saved. You can know that God has made a promise. You can know this. And no, not based on something you did at an altar 20 years ago. No, it's not based on that. It's based on, do you know the grace of God? It's based on God's promise. It's based on his plan. Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace that Paul was mentioning? Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. And the the only sure peace in this world is peace that Jesus Christ gives. Do you have this peace? If you died today, would you die and stand before your Savior and he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Do you have that peace of knowing that? Do you have the peace of knowing that you've been saved from sin Do you have the peace of knowing that you will spend an eternity in heaven and not in hell? Do you have the peace of knowing that? You can. By trusting in Christ. By trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Can you turn to God in prayer knowing that He loves you? Can you turn to God in prayer knowing that He accepts you as His own child? Do you know the peace that, as Paul said, that surpasses all understanding? Do you know the peace that that the Bible says that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus? Do you have that peace? You can. You can have that peace. It's the beautiful promise of Scripture. You can have that peace. It's a peace that comes from knowing God. You're trusting in Christ, turning from your sin. And surrendering your life to Him. Now, while that sounds easy enough, it's not. I didn't realize that. It's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. It's not what our hearts are naturally inclined to do is to surrender ourselves to God. But it's something that you'll never regret. Jesus has been given the authority to grant you eternal peace, and this peace He gave his own life for on the cross. And the same Jesus who died for you is the same Jesus who's delivering this message to you now. Do you have this peace? And if you believe in God's promises, you will. And if you believe and trust in God's plan, you will. 
And if you believe and trust in this and have his peace, you'll find and you'll discover something incredible. That his plan included you in it.